a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast. I am so happy to welcome back to the show my friend Christian Watson, host of the Pensive Politics Podcast. Christian, nice to catch up with you again. You too, my friend. I am so happy to be here. And what an awesome introduction you have for your radio show. I need to Thank take you. some notes. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, I've been, I've been uh, working on this. Uh, I... I like to get stuck in, in, in the comfort zone. You know, I like to get routine. Okay, now I know what to expect. So when it comes to rebranding, um, that can be a little bit uncomfortable, but uh, totally worth it. And it helps to know, to know talented people. Speaking of talented people, you're not going to toot your own horn a whole lot because you're a pretty modest guy. But I want you, for the sake of people hearing you for the very first time, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Well, I, I'm Christian, as you mentioned, Christian Watson, and I, I host the Pinta Politics podcast, which is really a exercise in both critical thinking and philosophical thinking, because I think that you can think critically but not think very philosophically. And if you don't think very, very, very philosophically, then you don't really have a basis to your what you're being critical about, in my opinion. And uh, it, it applies those two modes of thinking to politics. And so that's why I call it Pinta Politics. We're actually thinking and considering political issues in a way that is not really considered in mainstream media and even in some alternative media, not trying to attack anyone but in some alternative media as well. And so we do so from a libertarian perspective, but we have people of all stripes on. I mean, I've had a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Joshua Wong, who also is a Hong Kong dissident and has had led the 2019 protests and the 2014 umbrella protests. He came on. I had several other folks. I like libertarian presidential nominee, Joel Jorgensen. She came on. Uh, we might try and get her back as well. So like, we, have, we have a lot of good folks coming on and talking to us, and I'm just very grateful and blessed that I'm able to do this kind of stuff in this era because I'm not entirely sure there's another era of American history where we've had so many resources available to us, we being Americans and individuals, that we could use and foster for our own for our own greatness and the greatness abroad as well. Well, anybody who has a message to put out there, particularly a productive message that's, you know, there for the sake of um, helping people better understand what you stand for, more so than helping people understand this is what I'm against. I love Precisely. I love those who have a positive take on things. And we have a lot to discuss today. Um, one of the things that you mentioned we might bring up, and I think this would be a, a terrific topic for discussion, let's talk about uh, the libertarian presidential candidate, uh, Joe Jorgensen. And I understand yes. that the, I, I've, I've watched this just from afar. I am not a card-carrying libertarian part, party member. I lean libertarian on an awful lot of things. But I've watched with interest as she secured the Libertarian Party nomination, or at least I think she's the presumptive nominee. Is is it a done deal? It's a it's a done deal. Absolutely. Okay, but she also uh, she kind of put her foot in it a little bit uh, here recently. It appears I've seen some angst from some of my more libertarian friends online. Tell me about uh, what did Joe Jorgensen say, and and how could uh, how could she possibly run afoul of people in the tolerant climate climate that we live in these days? So Joe Jorgensen, and I'm not sure if she said it, but it was made in a tweet under her official account, and then there are people that run that account that are not her, but I, I'm, it's under her name. She basically said that it is not enough to be racist. We must be actively anti-racist. Now, to the 
person who looks common folk who is not really educated in the phraseology of some of these things within the social uh, justice climate that may sound like a reasonable proposition of course racism is terrible therefore being anti-racist is being against racism right well, it's not like that entirely. So anti-racism is essentially this ideology that not only should you be passively against racism, like not endorse racist behavior or not tolerate racist behavior, you should be attacking what is called racist systems. So apparently, since there is a disparity in the criminal justice system uh, with, between blacks and whites, that is allegedly a racist system. Since there are disparities in other levels, economics or whatever, or wealth, that is a racist system. So being anti-racist is not merely being against racism, it's being against systems, quote-unquote systems that, pop, that allegedly propagate racism. This is obviously a foul idea because it kind of dilutes the initial principle of the idea, which is to be against racism, because being against racism should not be a political thing. To be against so-called oppressive systems is an inherently political, partisan, subjective, relative term, and it's disgusting because guess what? Not all of us think racism is propagated every day through these phantom systems. There have been a lot of us, especially me, who have asked for evidence, and all we see is disparities. And disparities has, have been explained by economists and researchers abroad, and they've been explained in a very concise and objective manner, but yet people want to use disparities as evidence of racism. It is not a good thing. That is why Joe Jorgensen caught the ire of some libertarians, and that's why you know I think I like her. I like her a lot. I respect her. I've had her on my show. You guys should listen to that interview. But we just really – we need to – Talk, phrase these things a little bit better if we're going to have a honest conversation. Well, even with the most perfect phrasing, though, and I'm I'm not trying to defend her, you know, her statement, but it's right. it's tough to know what you can say, where you can step these days. Um, and and I say this, you know, I say this coming from a, a position of white privilege, or so someone would tell me, you know, <laughs> well, you're a middle aged white guy, what can you know? Are you are you white explaining this too? Are you you know oh, mansplaining it? Um, I don't know what's safe to say much anymore, and I know I'm not the only one who, who feels that way. It seems like there's a very concerted effort to, to control the, the narrative, and that unfortunately means that a lot of uh, points of view that could really add depth and understanding seem to be pushed to the side or eliminated in favor of, nope, this is the narrative, stick to it. Precisely, precisely, and, and what you're really talking about is like the entire cancel culture thing. Like, you know, if I if I if I say something that might offend someone, they have they have the ability to 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 cancel me or whatever. And really, we have to understand this. If we're going to understand a situation, we must do it genealogically. We must go back to when its initial initial inception happened. Cancel culture has existed for a very long time. Folks don't realize this. It existed in the colonies when when you gossiped about someone, they would put your your head in like this cage like apparatus that had a spike in the middle of it and if you talked your tongue would be impelled it existed in the 30s and 40s and 50s when mccarthy went after hollywood people and people in his local town who opposed him by calling them communists it existed in the 80s when you had obscenity laws being passed and sodomy laws being upheld it existed in the 90s when you had you know rap groups being arrested for being obscene it, ex it has existed for a very long time and it exists right now when you have jk Rowling being attacked for simply saying that her sex as a woman matters to her it, it exists in so many different forms. These things really aren't new. They're just manifesting in new ways. So we have to see if we're going to fight cancel culture, how did we fight it back then? We evolved. Human beings, particularly our thinking, evolve. When our thinking evolves, 
our actions evolve. And when our actions evolve, we are more mature about things, hopefully. We're more responsible about things, hopefully, of course. Now, this is a very optimistic viewpoint. But we evolved. And so if we want to actually fight cancel culture, we have to evolve in how we think about things. We have to stop thinking about things in such broad strokes. We have to recognize that nuance can exist without being hateful. We have to recognize that sentiments that individuals have are not always tied to a dominating political narrative. We have to do – there's more things than just that, but we have to really understand that these things are not as simple as we think they are. Knowledge is a problem. It is a problem is that it is constantly being evaluated. Pitfalls are being found, and we are reevaluating what we understand to be knowledge. This is an epistemological problem, so to speak, that we need to just try to understand deep at its root as opposed to just being so anti-intellectual. This is one of the reasons why I resonate with those individuals who say if, if there's speech out there that is disagreeable or even unpleasant – the answer is more free speech, not less free speech, because I'm very I'm confident the better ideas like the cream are going to rise to the top. People will recognize what is good, what is true, what's worth embracing. Precisely. And they'll and they'll, yeah. you know, push the rest to the margins. But uh, but somehow I get the sense that there are those who don't trust that process as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in case, though, you can't think that you can't say that. Right. And, and this idea about you white splitting things. Or, l- l- listen, <laughs> This is what happens when you take what is general and what is sort of, I would say, spiritual in a sense that opinions are spiritual since they are not manifest until you make them manifest. They do not appear until we show them, until we show them to people. When you take what is spiritual and you completely confuse it with the material, the past, i.e. racism and a lot of things that happened historically, or the present, you know, these supposed industries that are occurring, when you mix these things together, you do not get a correct outcome. You get a corrupted version of what you're trying to actually do. You're actually standing on corrupt foundation. So I don't think you're white splitting things, whatever the heck that means. You can have an opinion without that opinion being produced by your class or your privilege or whatever the heck people think is the reason you have that opinion. They, they're showing they don't want to engage you. As Margaret Thatcher said, when people de- devolved a personal insult, they don't have a single argument left. I absolutely think that's intimate. Where it, it describes cancer culture perfectly. Okay, we've got we're about 30 seconds away from our break. Again, if you're just joining us, Christian Watson is my guest. He is the host of the Pensive Politics podcast. Christian, before we go to break, tell people where they can hear your excellent podcast. Absolutely. So you can go on Apple Podcasts, just search Pensive Politics, Spotify, Pandora, any podcasting so- any software or network, you can go look, look it up. Even YouTube, search Pensive Politics, you'll see me and you'll see my little headshot. You can click on my channel. Subscribe, please. It helps me a lot. Just search Pensive Politics in any podcast listening software. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a very quick break. Again, my guest is Christian Watson. When we come back, I'm going to pick his brain a little bit about uh, what's going on with COVID-19. We thought everything was going to go back to, well, kind of normal. Now it looks like uh, maybe not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Christian Watson. He is the host of the Pensive Politics Podcast. And Christian is graciously letting me pick his brain a little bit today. Let's talk about COVID-19. 
We've had a few months to kind of adjust and get our minds around what's happening. And there for a while, you know, it, it really appeared that, uh, you know, things were reopening. And uh, I, I think it's safe to say, even though the the number of cases that are being documented seems to be on the rise, the death rate seems to be headed very much the opposite direction. What's the lay of the land from where you are? Uh, you're, you're broadcasting today from Georgia is there a sense of, of normalcy or hope returning or are people uh, locking back down again and, you know, trying to ride out the storm? So it really depends on what area of the state you're in. If you're in Atlanta right now, you're going to you're, you're witnessing, if you're observing, a fight between Governor Kemp and Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is the mayor, who is actually a prospective VP pick for, for Joe Biden, uh, after her very, I would say, eloquent speech about the violence in Atlanta, her urging it to stop. Uh, although she is has now, she's trying to force her citizens and several other mayors are trying to force the citizens to wear masks, which is a problem in my opinion, because number one, we've seen that masks compared to respirators, have a very nominal effect on the transmission of the very hair razor thin uh, COVID nineteen particles. So not all, and, and you know, I don't I don't believe in the anti mask conspiracies that masks can kill you or whatever, but I do think they're not really an effective method. And we have documented research to show this. But so these mayors are wanting to drive home narratives, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a, wear a mask, therefore they can't really operate out of any other thing because they don't have enough political, I guess, capital to do so without risking their base, prejudicing their base. But if you're in North Georgia or something like that, or you're in a rural Georgia, a lot of people don't really – they're not wearing masks. They're easygoing. I mean I've seen several travelers from Florida coming up here, no masks. They're just very happy going up on vacation. So I mean it depends on where you are. But overall, we just need to figure out – do we care enough about the truth to make decisions that tailor towards the truth, or do we care about driving home political narratives more than we care about actually finding a way to stymie this this plague, which we have fought graciously and valiantly over the past few months? You know, it's interesting. I was talking with a friend earlier today who is – all he does is workers' compensation law, and he said wow. in six months he has not received a single call from a worker who allegedly contracted COVID-19 at work. Now, he's talking, you know, Walmart employees, grocery store employees. And he says, I get three or four new client calls or emails every day. I can't help them all, but not a single one has been related to alleged COVID exposure. In fact, he spoke with a defense attorney in Salt Lake City who does only workers' compensation defense, and she has not seen a single COVID case with a worker seeking benefits for alleged COVID exposure. And I'm not saying there's the be all. There it is. There's the proof. It's a conspiracy. But I'm saying that sure adds fuel to the fire that uh, we're not getting the full story. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, especially and, and it's especially interesting to me when you have the government, the federal government trying to give another stimulus round of stimulus checks. And we don't I mean it's predicated upon this sort of Krugmanian idea that if you spend more money, things will get better. If you have a disaster, that stimulates the economy, this sort of Paul Krugman idea. And really, we understand that doesn't really work. And so I, I, when you it's we have to foundations are incredibly important for coherent concise and clear policymaking. And the foundation of these stimulus bills that have been happening to so to alleviate the COVID crisis have not been really have been very corrupt, have not been very honest. They have been predicated upon this idea that if we know we shut down the economy, we take away your ability to use your human genius to produce capital for yourself and for your family, and make you entirely dependent on a very small sum, twelve hundred dollars is a very small sum in today's world, of money, you'll be okay. No. 
No, that is not how things work. That is absolutely not how things work. Human beings need to keep innovating. We need to keep in, 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 in sort of inflicting our dynamic spirit onto the foes that assail us and attack us if we are ever going to grow. Because when a human being stops growing, it dies. We die. We have to grow. All life has to grow. Even in a very ancient tree keeps growing. It grows branches. It might grow in a smaller way. It might grow in a little bit more incremental way, but it keeps growing. These stimulus checks and the foundation of this lockdown stuff – does not is not conducive for human growth at all absolutely not i love that you bring up paul krugman because it's oh yes he is one of those economists that i look at and i just think you know somewhere in the great beyond <laughs> john maynard Keynes is looking at paul krugman and shaking his head going bro no <laughs> you're going too <laughs> exactly. far exactly oh, exactly i don't even think Keynes will go as far as krugman, krugman is gone just yeah Exactly. Let's talk for a second about uh, about some of the uh, the unrest that's taking place around the country. I know that you were keeping tabs on uh, Chaz, and then it was Chop, or maybe it's the other way yes. around up in, up in Seattle. Yes. Okay. There was a, there was a brief thing that came and went. Are there lessons that that we can learn from the experience that the city of Seattle had with this autonomous zone? Absolutely. Number one, you have to have a coherent idea of property rights if you actually want to have an autonomous zone. So there have been several – they call them communes throughout the history of the country, including some libertarian communes where you know the libertarians have this little area that they, that they own. OK, I own a certain acre, acreage of land, and I'm going to call this my commune. This is my area. Or you know, John Lennon and his island across off the coast of Scotland, he, he said, I'm going to call this my sort, of, my sort of country, my peaceful country. It's just me and Yoko Ono here, things like that. And that kind of stuff is legitimate. It's legitimate. Because it, it it is produced through the voluntary buying and selling of land and the and the legitimate ownership of land. The problem with Chaz and Chop is that they did not want to adhere to property rights. They did not respect the businesses in their autonomous zone. They arbitrarily pinned a certain area in Seattle as their protest site. They hijacked everything. They vandalized businesses. They stopped people from going into their houses. They absolutely interrupted the lives of people in a illegitimate fashion, an ethically illegitimate fashion. So we have to understand if you're going to protest, you're going to have a quote-unquote autonomous zone. You really need to actually do things in a legitimate fashion because if you don't think you do things in a legitimate fashion, you're absolutely not going to have a very strong foundation to stand upon. And that's why Chaz crumbled because it's not a very strong foundation. It was founded upon fear, coercion, and violence, and it went up in fear, coercion, and violence. And in fact, it's one Chaz shut down, and the official Twitter account said, well, you know, there's a lot of violence going on here. We can't do this anymore. But in my view, the principle of reaping and sowing, which I'm sure your viewers can appreciate, is precisely why violence uh, happened in Chaz. They sowed violence, so they're going to reap violence. It's very simple to me. So we just have to realize, guys, if you're going to protest, don't, don't, don't hijack people's lands. Don't, don't, don't coerce people into going to your side. Don't try to still or violate people's property rights. And also, don't sow something you can't, you, you can't reap. You don't have the temerity to reap. Have, have some gonads and be able to reap exactly what you sow. Because if you don't, not only do you not have a foundation to stand upon, you don't have the intellectual temerity to make the case that you're trying to make in the first place. Yeah, I think that's sound advice. You know, I mean, look, white hot rage can only get you so far. And there was I've seen plenty of, of white hot rage. And I mean, on a lot of different sides all around the country now for for quite a few weeks. But uh, but it's never sustainable and never, as, as you mentioned, it never has the staying power to create something that is of lasting value. I mean, we celebrate right. we celebrated Independence Day just a little over a week ago. And uh, there was certainly some there was anger and there was discontent on the part of the colonists when they separated from Great Britain. But more importantly, there was moral truth and there were principles 
that they were more attached to than simply how angry they were at King George. Precisely. Absolutely. In fact, I did a, I did a Declaration of Independence special, an Independence Day special on July 4th for my, my podcast, Men's of Politics. And I read from Patrick Henry's uh, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. He talked, about, he talked about the light of natural truth that we are going to use to bring forth our assertions. I read it I, in the first few words of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, uh, the first few sentences, Thomas Jefferson was basically life, liberty, happiness, these sort of solid values that we are using to drive forth something. And when you stand on moral truth, when you stand on that philosophically pure or benevolent uh, principle that you use to motivate your actions, you are doing something in an ethical, legitimate way, and your actions are more disposed to ethicality and legitimacy. But when you stand on false notions, it's fine if you want to use those false notions to protest, but using those false notions to coerce people is just terrible. Okay, folks, this right here is why I want you to I want you to subscribe to this young man's podcast. Christian Watson is my guest. He's the host of the Pensive Politics podcast. Tell him again where they can find it, Christian. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, any podcast network, and YouTube, most importantly. Christian Watson is my YouTube channel name, Pensive Politics. Just YouTube that. You'll get it. Fantastic to catch up with you. we got to do this again. I agree. Absolutely. 100%. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Lines are open, 801-331-8113. If you are fortunate enough to be catching the live broadcast, this is your prime opportunity to join the conversation. Again, 801-331-8113. I have seen a lot of uh, appeals to science, not just on social media, although it, it seems like, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, addressing COVID-19, should we lock down, should we socially distance, should we wear masks, and so on and so on, people tend to uh, gravitate towards, well, the science has spoken. Do you not believe in science? And, and there, there's a real, uh, I don't know, there's leverage, emotional leverage being applied every time someone says, well, you know, if you want to reject science, I guess you could go that way. <laughs> probably washing your clothes on a rock down by the river and using leeches to treat your kids when they're sick. At least that's what seems to be implied. I have a wonderful commentary I'm going to share with you in just a few moments from Paul Rosenberg, how science lost its respectability. And I don't want you to think this is a blanket condemnation or, you know, a return to to the, the Luddite age. It's a very solid critique of how science, which initially began just as a process has managed to be attached to a number of things, including politicized causes, and how that gives us a less than respectable, less than desirable result. Stick around for that. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Oh, am I on? You are on. Oh, hi, Brian. I just want you have uh, is the gentleman still on with you from the. Uh... No, uh, Christian Christian Watson is no longer on with us. Oh, okay. Did you have a question for him? Well, I was going to suggest that he uh, take advantage of a gentleman who worked in pathology for, oh, oh 40 years. Anyway, uh, 
it just breaks my heart that this nonsense is being put out there that is it's not science it's sophistry oh and it's designed yeah. designed to fill the uh, the needs of these uh, characters i don't know what to say about them other than the fact that they're willing to ruin a nation ruin a world ruin people for whatever their motive is i have a suspicion suspicion of that motive but uh doesn't get a lot of traction well it's i understand it's not a popular message cuz right it's not easy for people's ears they want to hear something that's reassuring like here's right. a check with your name on it <laughs> that's what they want to hear well and also if you begin to really understand the truth it puts a burden of responsibility on you and you have to adapt to that truth and people don't want to adapt quite frankly no you're right you know truth truth brings accountability Uh uh-huh but the nice thing is that uh, um, that statement know the truth and the truth will make you free but also if you know the truth is sometimes will make you a little bit mad oh absolutely (laughs) (laughs) hey thanks so much for the call I appreciate it. 801-331-8113. He's right, by the way. The truth is uh, the truth is a painful thing for most of us. And, and I'm going to hearken back, since I'm going to share this commentary from Paul Rosenberg. Uh, this guy has, has, has so many incredible bits of wisdom that I have gleaned from him over the years that I've been reading his essays and following his work. One of the things that he has, has really brought to the forefront in my mind is when it comes to, you know, if, you, if you're tempted to argue with people, if you're contending for the truth and you don't want to, you want to, you know, throw down and, and go to, to battle with someone online over the truth. Paul Rosenberg was the guy who reminded me that really, if you have arrived at the truth, if you have struggled through, sorted things out and been able to come to an understanding of what is true for yourself, you have already won the toughest battle. You don't have something that you need to prove to somebody else by dominating them and forcing them to toe the line. And what he's saying there isn't, you know, so therefore passively sit down and don't say anything. You've won the toughest battle. He's just saying don't bring more anger into the situation. Because there are people when you present them with the truth that they do not want to acknowledge, they're going to puff up and, you know, they're going to go, you know, guerrilla mode on you to try to shut you down and dominate you. And you don't have to play that game. You can walk away from it. You can say this doesn't sound like a discussion so much as an argument. And I didn't come here to argue. And keep walking. Let's talk about how science lost its respectability. Paul Rosenberg says science in the pure sense is simply a process. But he says since this process is so incredibly productive, lots of groups and people have grafted the name onto themselves. Now, that was always a risky thing to do, but for a long time, the fruits weren't too bad, and the groups contained a lot of serious people who cared more about discovery than they did base gain. In more recent times, however, he says, we've seen the corruption and even the disgrace of what people think of as science. I like the example he leads off with here. Scientific Marxism, with its 100 million plus death toll, certainly drove some of this. But the big wave of Marxism came when the philosophy of science was stronger than it is now. And serious scientists dismissed the Marxist claims something as something of a dangerous joke. And so he says, I'd like to explain the other corruptions of science. In other words, I'd like to explain why we are right to treat the science that is promoted by all things large and loud as inherently suspect. 
First of all, there is political control. We all know that politicians are liars and thieves. The way they convince people to vote for them is to portray their opponents as horribly evil. It is the lesser monster who wins elections, not the candidate who is demonstrably good. And so politics taking over scientific funding has spread this rot into the labs and offices controlling scientific research. He says, I'll spare you the details. More or less, every scientist can tell you horror stories and merely say that the barbarians now lord it over the scientists and far too many scientists have turned into junior barbarians. The desperate succumb. The brave are expelled. Science, he says, has become a refuge for the emotionally scarred. He says, please consider this insightful passage from Eric Hoffer's The Ordeal of Change. Quote, there is an element of misanthropy in all determinists. To all of them, man as he really is, is a nuisance. And they strive to prove by various means that there is no such thing as human nature. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I don't wish to be uncharitable, but a significant percentage of people entering scientific professions do so at least in part because they feel it resonates with their damage, with their scars. Since the late Enlightenment, science has been portrayed as an enemy of faith. So it became attractive to people who were abused by various faiths or by people claiming to represent such faiths. And, of course, this travels right along the misanthropic philosophies that have overflowed the academy, postmodernism, deconstruction, critical theory, and so on. All are slash-and-burn ideologies focused on chopping down faith or at least destroying traditional values. But he says these traditional values, however, were sometimes benevolent and productive. Swinging the sword of science against them in an emotional outburst was foolish, immensely foolish. And then you have the levers of power. Here's another insightful quote, this one from George Orwell. Quote, the secret wish of this English Russophile intelligentsia was to destroy the old equalitarian version of socialism and usher in a hierarchical society where the intellectual can at last get his hands on the whip. End quote. The point here is that the levers of power call out and seduce, and many, many scientists have succumbed. The urge to get one's hands on power can be justified in nearly infinite ways. And this desire to get one's hands on the whip involves everything from lording it over a department to running an organization that dictates policy that will be forced upon millions of people. Scientists will continue to be corrupted by it, and for as long as the opportunity lasts. Finally, there is guiding power. Actually, that's not the last one. Second to last, guiding power. One of the great errors of the Renaissance and Enlightenment periods was to imagine that enlightened types could guide rulers into becoming blessings. This is how Alan Bloom explained it in the closing of the American mind. Quote, enlightenment was not only or perhaps not even primarily a scientific project, but a political one. It began from the premise that the rulers could be educated, a premise not held by the Enlightenment's ancient brethren. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says to rule is to apply coercion and to justify it. It involves the use of force, confusion, and a variety of intimidations. Educating the ruler so he or she becomes a philosopher king has always been a fool's errand, a self-aggrandizing dream of an easy way out. And it has more or less always led downward. As physicist and author David Deutsch noted, quote, the continental enlightenment was, was impatient for the perfected state, which led to intellectual dogmatism, political violence, and new forms of tyranny, end quote. 
Nonetheless, Paul Rosenberg says a great number of science types have been seduced by this. Now, there are are a couple more paragraphs. We'll get to those the other side of this break. But I have to ask you, is his point making sense? Can you see how science has lost some of its respectability? Not because it's an inherently evil process in and of itself, but simply there were certain aspects of human nature that have been allowed to infiltrate. And the effect is being felt. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Going to open up the phone lines here in just a few moments. Ray will be joining us. I want to finish up this commentary from Paul Rosenberg on how science lost its creativity, or not creativity, credibility. There's a difference. And among the ways that it lost its credibility, political control was one of them. It became a refuge for the emotionally scarred. There are levers of power that have tempted those within science. There's guiding power. The ego of the public scientist is the next one. And in this one, Paul Rosenberg says, by using ego here, I don't mean it in the best sense. And it has been very common, a very common characteristic of public scientists to become egotistical, right along with becoming lax and errant. Dr. Fauci comes to mind for some reason. He says, I won't go through examples, but we've all seen it and it isn't pretty. And yet science remains. And he reminds us of a a quotation. This is from the Old Testament. God advised Jeremiah, what is the chaff to the wheat? And so it is for the remaining devotees of science proper. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, my point in writing this is not to demean actual science, but to point out that the science foisted on the public is a disaster and that the people who are serious about science should start speaking up and start separating from it. Authority has no place in science. And he says, so I leave you with the motto of the Royal Society, the outsider group that played such a great role in getting science moving back in the 1600s. Nullius in verba. Take nobody's word for it. I love it. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can access them at lovingliberty.net. To the phone, Ray, thanks for your patience. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Um, amazing article and, and amazing young man at the beginning of your show. Wow. Um, you, you're one of a kind. Really appreciate you. And, um, now, now I, I think, you know, one thing is a social, I mean, scientific review, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing when you have, or I mean, peer, peer review. You know, at, at one point it does weed out the mistakes but at the same time um it it's limitations uh i I mean look how long it took albert einstein to get a lot of his work um recognized you know you know and and also um with um oh having another biden moment here that with a catastrophism um I can't think of his name, but uh, Carl Sagan and the academic world sure um, pushed 
the the author of catastrophism out of the academic world, but you know he had a lot of valid points, you know, no question. So, and another problem with science, you know, when people look at it as a god, you, you know, they um, because science is limited to the physical world, and it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual. And all of us that have had close family members die and and are aware of the spiritual world know of its limitations, you know. Right. And and I guess the the third reason I would say that science has its its limitations, um, um, well, like you said, you know, the struggle to to get one's hands on the whip, you know, but you know, I'm having another Biden moment here. Maybe I should leave it at no, that. No, <laughs> that's Ray. Thank you so much for weighing in. I so appreciate your thoughts on that. Thank have a you. have a good one. Eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. There is another essay that I'm going to link in the show notes, and I hope I have time to cover. You know the gist of it. Um, I don't want this to sound like well, you're attacking you're attacking Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, He's definitely being called into question here. And Angelo Cotavia is the one doing it. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. Actually, AmGreatness.com. Fauci is a deep state fraud. And Angelo Cotavia, I've had the opportunity to interview this guy before. I have read many of his, uh, his essays. This is a guy who speaks with a voice of experience. And I'm not saying that his words are infallible and therefore shall be chiseled in stone. But I'm telling you, he is very good at connecting the dots And I think he does a very good job here of pointing out how Dr. Anthony Fauci has misled the country. He says, I knew for sure that Anthony Fauci is a fraud after listening to him for about 10 seconds, as anyone who listens carefully would have known as well. And this is the example that he gives. President Trump had been charging the Chinese government with obscurity and deception in its handling of the novel coronavirus outbreak. Fauci had dealt intimately with the Chinese on that matter. His National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the Centers for Disease Control had partially financed the notorious Wuhan laboratory where Chinese scientists were researching the virus. So Fauci knew a lot. And a reporter asked Fauci if he agreed with Trump that the Chinese have not been fully forthcoming about the scope of the pandemic. Fauci answered that although the Chinese had lacked candor in previous years, this time they had turned over, quote, the sequence of the virus, spoken like a wily swamp reptile. Now, here's why. His words were factually correct. The Chinese had turned over all they knew about the virus's sequence, namely its genetic structure. But the reporter and the audience neither knew nor cared about that. They were interested in the Chinese government's misrepresentations of the virus's contagion, fatality rate, and so forth. This is what they had dissembled and lied about, they being the Chinese. Fauci's answer artfully deceived the audience into believing the opposite of the truth. Thus did Fauci help plant a dagger between Trump's shoulder blades and help his party, the Democrats and the deep state, extort the American people's compliance to their agendas. Now, you need to understand that uh, Angelo, Angelo Cotavia is not carrying water for Donald Trump. 
And in fact, he calls Trump out in this essay saying Trump's decision to accredit Dr. Anthony Fauci as the COVID-19 pandemic's guru is largely responsible for the extent of the panic that gripped America in the spring and now summer. Fauci is a bona fide graduate of medical school. Many attest to his earlier epidemiological brilliance, but none of the words by which he has helped inflict chaos on America have reflected either medical or epidemiological facts. He says Fauci has acted as and has been a politicized partisan bureaucrat while pretending to be the disinterested authority of physicians and scientists. Cotavia says the pretense that COVID-19 is something like and hence to be treated like the plague is the essence of the scam that the deep state and the Democratic Party are perpetrating on America. Anthony Fauci's pseudo-medical, pseudo-scientific pretense is the foremost pillar of that lie. Sowing and maintaining confusion about the severity of COVID-19 infections, indeed about the very meaning of the word case, has been at the heart of that lie. Understanding the truth begins with comparing the infection fatality rate, or IFR, of ordinary seasonal flu, 0.01%, with that of the bubonic plague or smallpox, around 30%, and then realizing that COVID-19's IFR is roughly that of the flu. Although Fauci was not the sole author of the confusion, Cotavia says he was certainly the most influential in spreading it. And it was a lie because by January, Fauci knew that the Chinese government's indications and media management to the contrary, COVID-19 was what we in the West have since learned from experience. Deadly to the very old and otherwise compromised, but milder than most flu strains for just about everyone else. That knowledge notwithstanding. Fauci concurred with the mathematical modeler's dire forecast of frightful across-the-board mortality rates. He substantiated their baseless assumptions of an IFR around 5% for everyone by citing a case, as a case rather, any sick person who tested positive for the virus or who had a fever, cough, and other respiratory symptoms like those caused by the virus. He then agreed that all such persons who died should have their deaths attributed to the virus. In late March, Fauci convinced President Trump, convinced rather President Trump, that a wave of new deadly cases would overwhelm America's health care system unless Americans huddled at home. And Trump agreed. Remember, 15 days to slow the spread. Thereafter, the lockdowns took on a momentum of their own. Now, there is much more to this article. But the bottom line is, I mean, he calls out Fauci's dishonesty of, uh, you know, the pretense that all COVID-19 infections are cases requiring sequestration and quarantine. He talks about uh, the uh, hydroxychloroquine, the standard anti-malarial drugs usefulness against COVID-19, discovered accidentally. Remember when President Trump praised it and the deep state howled? Trump and they, uh, anyway, they, they said, yes, you know, that's, that's a dangerous thing the president is suggesting here. Have you listened to what they are saying lately? Fauci has retreated silently and just allowed that misconception to to stand, while peer-reviewed studies have confirmed, no, hydroxychloroquine actually is quite useful. He's doing the best he can for his class, but not for us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.